We are on the last temptation. Apparently, there's a lot more that can be said. There's a whole lot more that can be said. But I have tried my hardest to not take an hour and 15 minutes every time I stood up and preached. <laughs> that is not a dig towards Dan. That's a dig towards my uh, inability to see a clock from up here behind the pulpit. So, no, I'm good. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, once again, I'll read verses 1 through 11, but this time we'll focus uh, primarily on verses 8 through 11. Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> and it reads, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We've already seen just how and why Jesus goes through this particular series of temptations. We've walked through that a number of times. We've seen how he represents the people of Israel, those who were tasked with sending the good news of God throughout all the world. And we've seen how they failed in the wilderness and Christ, who is in this wilderness, succeeds. We've seen this representation of the prophet, of Moses, one who knew God face to face, one who fasted these 40 days and 40 nights and received directly from God the word of truth, that which he was to give to the people of God. And we've also seen 
how Jesus represents humanity, how he is the second and better Adam. We recognize that the genealogy that Luke places between his baptism and his temptation draws us all the way back to the beginning. And that's what's so difficult about today's passage. Thinking back about Adam's sin, the more I'd read about it, the more I'd study it, the scary thing is, is that Adam is not unique in that way. We know it wasn't an accident. We know he wasn't fooled and accidentally ate of the fruit. There was something there that Adam desired. There was something about eating this fruit, something that he could attain by doing so. And that drew him away from God in hopes of a better self. That's the scary part. One of the things that I noticed this week in this passage, and I don't want to insert us into this passage because it's not about us per se, but when we look at the beginning where Jesus is led up by the Spirit, remember who's giving this account. Remember how Matthew got this story. There was only one person in that wilderness on that mountain. He got it directly from Jesus. Jesus knows he was led up into the wilderness by the Spirit. He's where God wants him to be. Don't miss that. He's led up into the wilderness by the Spirit. He is where God wants him to be. He is following the promptings of God. And what does he do? He fasts. He fasts. Isn't that a holy thing to do? Isn't that what we all strive to do, to be closer to God, to be sensitive to his promptings, to do the things that would draw us more and more near to him? Fasting, praying, meditating on his word. And it was in the midst of his spiritual journey at the very center of this circumstance the devil comes to him but then the devil takes him to the pinnacle of the temple the devil takes him to the peak of the highest mountain. 
So he's gone from a place where he is obviously within the will of God. He's where God himself has led him, where the spirit has brought him and he knows it. And now he's being taken to places by the devil. How many of us find ourselves in the same circumstance? In similar situations? When we think we're the most spiritual, when we think we're the closest to God, we find ourselves at times blinded and vulnerable. And we end up in places, at times thinking that it's God's leading, but it's not. Why do we think it's God's leading? Well, because it's things that we desire. We see a door open in front of us and we say, well, that door wouldn't be open unless God wanted me to walk through it. There's something missing there. There's something that you and I lack that leads us and leaves us vulnerable to these sorts of temptations. I believe Christ addresses that. See, because what we lack is discernment. Yeah, it's easy to sit here and say, I know that I should not kill and the murderer is wrong. It's easy to say that I, I know that stealing is, is, is wrong. That's blatantly obvious. But what happens when it's your desire? What happens when it's something so close to what you need? What happens when what lies before you is the very thing that you think would make everything all right. That's frightening. And it's frightening because if you and I lack the discernment to know the will of God versus the lust and desires of the flesh through the temptations of the evil one. Then we are vulnerable to fall and to continue falling until we're in a place that we can't seem to find our way back. I said Jesus addresses this problem. How does he address the problem? He's been doing it over and over and over again. He's been directing our attention to the word of God. 
over and over and over again. He says it is written. It is written again. It is written. And he quotes passages that apply just so perfectly to his circumstance. His heart is saturated with the word of God. Notice what it didn't say. It didn't say he did something supernatural. It didn't say, well, he's God. And so obviously he won't fall to that temptation. Jesus is showing us that we, you and I, have everything we need in God to resist and to endure the temptations of the flesh. He shows us that scripture itself is more than sufficient. God has revealed to us all that we need in his word. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. How difficult is that one? We've got entire so-called churches designed to put God to the test. Faith healers, prosperity preachers, all of these things designed to put God to the test. Leading people to ignore any sort of personal responsibility and saying, if God doesn't do it, then it just won't be done. Forgetting that God himself commands us to do things. God himself restricts us from doing things. And yet here we are testing God. Seeking to force his hand. Not for his glory. Not because we seek to shine a light on him, not because we seek to draw the masses to to him. But for us. For selfish reasons. For our own pride. And arrogance. When we look at this text, one of the most difficult things is that the devil shows Jesus the pinnacle of the American dream, right? 
life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It's not just the American dream. I mean, it's the dream of humanity. We want to rule the world. We know best. We want to be in charge. We want to achieve the most that we can possibly achieve. We want to live forever. We want our name to be known throughout every corner of the earth. I mean, it hits at the heart of our own pridefulness. Does it not? He takes them to this high mountain. And in a moment shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and just how glorious they look. And he tells Jesus, this could all be yours. I'll give it to you. What are you willing to do for it? You see, there's the slight. There's the little sneaky thing there. Are we so blind in our pursuits that when something's dangled before our eyes, the very thing that we've been working so hard for, the very reason that we are here, the very promises that we've heard, somebody sets it in front of you. You don't have to go through all that suffering. It shouldn't have to be this hard. Why do you think it should take as long as it is? You can enjoy all of this right now. Not now, but right now. Just do this one simple thing. The text says, fall down. Fall down. And worship me. Now, we're all in church. We're like, well, we have the rest of the passage and not supposed to worship anybody but God. We know that. I'm sure Jesus knows that too. I mean, clearly he doesn't do it, right? But how do we perform in life? When the very pinnacle of our pursuits right in front of our faces no, the devil doesn't stroll out and say it can all be yours if you just worship me. Sadly, he doesn't even have to. Because we do it 
without a single doubt or hesitation. We cast aside who we are. We, we, we cast aside who brought us to this point in hopes of grabbing hold of something that, if we're honest with ourselves, perishes so quickly in the blink of an eye. And yet, Jesus tells us And I want to be clear about this. He doesn't condemn the kingdoms. He doesn't say, I don't want them. He doesn't say, that we shouldn't pursue to be better or to be greater or to be more godly. He doesn't cast any of that aside. What he says is, there's your way and there's God's way. You see, the devil's way is that Jesus would fall. The word used there for fall has a couple senses there. The first is obviously what we would visualize, right? We, we think that to fall down and worship is to drop to our knees and bow and do this little up-down motion. There's also... The idea of falling. Meaning where you are is being surrendered. Who you are, your status, your position. This idea of you being the son of God, cast that aside. And worship me. Don't just humble yourself. Don't just humiliate yourself. Don't just cast aside who God is and who he says you are. But now make me your God. That's the call. Wasn't that the devil's pursuit from the beginning? Listen to me. Don't listen to God. Pay attention to me. Don't pay attention to God. He's keeping stuff from you. I'm telling you the truth. Why would he hide such a great blessing from you? I mean, clearly he's lying. Listen to me. I have your best interest at heart. Listen to me. I answer all the questions you have. Listen to me. I'll give you everything you ever wanted. 
seeks to make himself God. And Christ recognizing that. Commands him to be gone. Don't get it twisted. That is a command. It's not him just saying, oh, be, be gone, get, get away from me. I don't want to hear it. He commands Satan to be gone. And then he does something that he's done a few times before, doesn't he? For it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. And the devil left. How wonderful is that? Jesus commands Satan, be gone, and the devil left him. It's a helpful reminder, isn't it? That the devil is subject to the Lord. That all it takes is a word. That he can do nothing unless God allows You see, because here's the kicker. While we see that Jesus was clearly within the will of God, he was clearly where God had intended him to be, he was led by the Spirit. He said it himself. And we see that, yes, the devil took him to these places and presented to him all of these things that were just so tempting and answered the desires of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, all these things. Where was the spirit? Where was God in the story? He never left. You see, because in the midst of those temptations, the spirit was with him. When I am weak, then I am strong. God's strength is perfected in our weakness. Why is that? Because it's all of him. You and I know every single one of these, we fail miserably. It doesn't matter how many times you put it in front of us, 100 times out of 100, chances are you and I would fail. But when we are weak, we recognize our need for God. When we are weak, we are drawn to him to seek his strength. It's when we're at our lowest that we say, Lord, if you don't help me, I don't know what I'm going to do. There's a difference between that prayer and casting yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, seeking the force's hand.
There's a boatload of scripture I want to quote, and I'll do it just because. So give me just a second. One of the ones that come to mind, and this may be more on the application side of things, but Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, he says something that we've probably all got memorized. What does it profit a man? Hmm. What does it profit a man? If he gained the whole world, what did the devil show Jesus? And lose, the ESV translates it, and forfeits his soul. What profit is there? That which is lost is so much more valuable than the things that you supposedly gain. This idea of soul, right? Lose his, his soul. In other words, you are so focused on temporal things. To use Paul's analogy, things that are consumed with use. It's like the equivalent of burning some firewood, right? That wood is consumed, it's destroyed when you use it. We're so focused on things that are temporal, things that are destroyed, that we forfeit what transcends all of that. Last time we used the comparison of Esau being so focused on the right now that he forfeits his birthright all for some temporary satisfaction. To forfeit your soul is more than just losing your life. To forfeit your soul is losing your identity, who you are in Christ. You're standing before God the very center. The Apostle John says that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And likewise, Isaiah and James and even Peter echo that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord remains. What is it that we should be clinging to? What is it that should be our focus? The psalmist likewise in Psalm 49 tells us, be not afraid when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house increases for when he dies. Well, what happens then? Can he take it all with him? 
that which he dedicated his whole life to, that which he cast all other things aside for, what happens to it when he dies? The psalmist says he will carry away nothing. What he considered his glory will not go down with him. And even thinking about Moses, who was raised in Pharaoh's palace by, by Pharaoh's daughter, who had every single thing you could imagine. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered reproach with Christ greater. The reproach of Christ being greater wealth than any of the treasures of Egypt. You see, rather than clinging to things that just weren't for him, he recognized where the true source of his identity was. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel that Jesus knew already that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Even Hannah, in her prayer after dedicating her son Samuel to God for a life of service, says, the Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and he exalts. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that the Lord says, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth. And I give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why does any of this matter? What do each of those scriptures point us to? Well, they remind us that this is not about you and I. This isn't about us. It reminds us that the gifts that we receive, the good gifts, they don't come from our own pursuits. They don't come from the devil or from others. They come from God. In this idea of worship, I don't know how the devil appeared to Jesus. I don't know if he came down in the form of an angel and appeared that way. I don't know if it was 
in the mind? I have no idea. What I do know is that here is a being that is claiming to hold in his hands all the kingdoms of the world. He's puffing himself up. And in doing so, seeking to get Jesus to consider himself smaller and smaller. And what do we do when we see somebody with so much power, so much strength, so much influence? So charismatic. People tend to follow, don't they? They tend to worship, don't they? They say all the right things, right? We're not the only ones who fall for that. John, in the book of Revelations, when the angel had given them all these words to write down in the book, and he says, these are the true words of God. What did John do? It says John fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But get this. Here's the difference. You see, the angel told him, no, you must not do that. I, this is an angel speaking, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who holds to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This is the angel speaking. Who does not place himself even above John but recognizes that he too is simply a fellow servant. And here we have the devil saying, worship me. Discernment. Where's the difference? So quick to hold fast to things of this world because they promise us all that we desire. And we make them idols and worship them. But even the angels say, no, we ourselves are servants just like you. No better off, no worse, no higher status. We're just like you. Worship God, worship him and, and him alone. Jesus clinging to the things of God recognizes the problem, pays attention to the real issue. The issue is not the desires of the flesh. The issues, they're not the pride of life. The issue isn't the lust of the eyes. The issue is the fact that our worship belongs to God. That's the problem. That's the focus. 
That's the issue. Worship. In the midst of our temptations, we, you and I, are to worship. At our weakest moments, our weakest times in life where we are struggling, we are called to worship. No matter what the circumstance No matter how high or how low we may be, the call is to worship and to worship the one true God rightly. You know, the entire book of Matthew is about worship. It begins with worship of Christ. It ends with worship of Christ. The wise men, what did they come for? They sought Jesus so that they might worship him. Timothy, when he finally saw the pierced hands and the pierced side of Jesus, What did he do? He worshiped him. He says, my Lord and my God. And here you have the devil seeking to divert our worship from God. So that he himself might be exalted. Seeking to rob God of his glory, of his honor. And Christ reminds us that our worship ought be directed only to God. It says, him only shall you serve. Well, that's nice. Peter tells us. James tells us. And others that we are to submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. But he adds something to it. He says, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. That's a conditional command, right? We're commanded to draw near to God. And in our drawing near to him, he draws near to us. Peter says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then he commands us, once again, to resist him. Firm in your faith. Let 
Moses tells us, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name shall you swear. Joshua says the same thing. He says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This Jesus that we serve is Lord. This confession that we have focuses our attention on the person and work, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and reign of our Lord. So rather than diverting our eyes from him, who is much greater, and deserving of much more. Rather than diverting our eyes from him and turning to perishable things, things that are passing away and seeking them, even at the cost, even at the cost of what God himself says we are, his children, the bride of his son. That is something that is frightening to think about. There is no resistance. There is no denial of these temptations apart from the Spirit of God, apart from this new birth that we have when we are rescued from the bondage of sin and free, brought into the kingdom of his Son. Apart from God, there is no freedom. Apart from his spirit, there is no true strength, no true wisdom and understanding, no discernment. That should be clear. Look at the world today. Turn on the television or the radio or read a magazine or a paper and it's laid out for all to see. Discernment doesn't exist apart from God. And so our prayer ought be, Father, by your Spirit, grant us, grant us that discernment that we might see the things of you and resist the things of the devil. 
that our worship might be directed toward you and that you would keep us from falling. Let us pray that prayer. Most gracious God, Father, during this time where we have gathered for this very purpose of worship, Lord, we are thankful that by your Spirit we have new life.